0: Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And this week, Jasmine will be interviewing biochemist Shannon Falconer. And this interview is going to knock your socks off because Shannon is working on the holy grail of veganism. Her company, Because Animals, is developing cultured meat for dogs and cats. The cat food, which will be the first to reach the market, will be derived from mouse cells. Oh my god, I can't believe it. It's well, it's not here, but it's almost here.
1: We do get into the mouse issue as well and the the mice were all adopted, so they were not killed for this and they oh, will Of course not. Right. Of course and, not. and they won't have to be used in the future. So we talk about that a lot. So if you, if you're listening to this and and your wheels are spinning, I almost said spins are wheeling. If your wheels are spinning or your spins are wheeling, just stay tuned for the interview because we'll we'll unpack that a bit and it's very exciting.
0: It's, it's unbelievably a cat exciting. It's
1: very excited. Yeah, my cat is like, I'm in. I'm ready.
0: My cats couldn't care less, but I'm really excited, and they will be excited once they smell that mouse meat. So God, it, sounds, it sounds so awful to say that. I, know. I can't believe I get to say that.
1: Well, yeah, I love this interview. Really, truly, I I know we I, we only we only ever say I love this interview when it's true. By the way, we love our interviews a lot. But Shannon, this is a very special interview. So definitely check it out. If you're in the flock, please be sure to listen to the bonus content as well because I loved this bonus content with her. And by the way, speaking of which, if you are in the flock, then make sure you're joining our Mighty Networks community. If you don't know what I'm talking about, keep an eye out for a link in your email. And if you're not in the flock, you will be invited to join uh, an aspect of it in, in a few weeks as well. So it's really, it's just a brand new platform that we are using to engage with one another. And I'm really enjoying it. And we're hoping to uh, have one additional element each month of the year, including a podcast that will just be for Flock members. So in addition to the bonus content, yeah.
0: I've been focusing on Mighty Networks uh, a lot. And it's really, I think it's really going to be cool. Yeah. I can't wait till everybody's on board.
1: So we were talking about the the cats. But can can I tell you about this dog before we get to the end? Please,
0: please, please tell us about the dog because it's all you've been talking about. I know. And there's so many
1: emotions I'm feeling right now, as you know. But all right. So I'm a host at Weekend Edition at WXXI. You just yawned. Is this story already boring?
0: (laughs) It's not boring at all. I'm just, you know, tired. Oh, okay.
1: Well, anyway, so... I'm gonna be putting together one story a week for WXXI in addition to my weekend hosting job. And I made quite a few pitches and the pitch that they accepted was this animal adoption event, but it wasn't about the animal adoption event. It was about this one particular dog at the animal adoption event. And his name is Dustin and he has a, a wonderful, glorious pit bull. He's black, he has three legs, uh, and it's a very sad story, as so many do. He is in a very loving foster family right now, and so there is that. I have hope that the story, I hope this story results in him getting adopted, because I certainly cried the whole ride home after meeting him, but the story is really about not only the plight of pit bulls, but the misunderstanding about them, not just in terms of their personalities. Obviously, they have a bad rap. Nobody listening to this is going to be... Uh, you know, shocked to hear that. Everyone knows it. But also, the story gets into the misunderstandings and misconceptions about breed discrimination laws, which you helped me with that part of the story. So thank you for that.
0: Oh, yeah. And, you know, breed discrimination laws definitely do exist, but they don't exist in New York State. There's a, I think there's about, I don't if I recall correctly, 12 or 13 states that have Prohibition on breed discrimination in New York is one of them. So communities, municipalities can't pass a law banning pit bulls. People don't even know that. There have been municipalities that have passed such laws and they had to be told, uh, no, you can't do that. And the other law, which is really new and which really could make a huge difference for pit bulls if anybody ends up knowing about it is that insurance companies are not allowed to discriminate against pit bulls in, in New York state in providing homeowners insurance and so lots of insurance companies may have a whole list of of breeds of, and pit bulls are always you know at the top of that list of of dogs who if they're living in a household they won't they won't give homeowners insurance to that household or they'll they'll limit people's ability to get insurance in in various ways and it would apply to landlords too so it could affect renters as well it's just really been a real roadblock for a lot of people in be, being able to get either homeowner's insurance or to get a pitfall. So I think it's really exciting that people know more about it. And you found, I think, that even some people who were involved in rescue didn't realize New York had this law, which is really alarming. You know, it happens too often with animal laws that they get passed and then they don't do anything. They don't get enforced because people don't know about them. Yeah,
1: I did talk... One of the people I I had spoken with for this story didn't realize that and was saying that sometimes people don't... The question was, why do people pass by pit bulls so often at these adoption events? And one of the reasons that she gave was, oh, well, people say that, that... their insurance company won't cover them. And I found out later that that's not true. And so I circled back and told her that, which is great. But yeah, so that was cool. And I, I'm i just really happy that this story is out there. And I hope I can get more pro animal stories up. So I will certainly keep you posted. We are going to link to it in the show notes. So do take a look. There's an article. And then at the top, if you want to just listen to the radio version. Just listen to that.
0: And as far as we know, Dustin is still available. Right. Well, as far as we know,
1: that's right. Yeah. So from cats to dogs to birds, let's talk about what's going on with the egg shortage.
0: Yeah. Well, the, the thing that made me want to talk about this, I mean, I'm sure all of you have heard about, well, not only the egg shortage, but bird float. I just heard a a news story on NPR about inflation and the price of food going up. And one of the foods they mentioned was eggs, because the price of eggs has gone up dramatically. I think 60%, some people say in some places, 100%. Yeah, inflation has had something to do with the increase in the price of eggs. But the real huge huge issue is bird flu. I mean, the birds are dying everywhere. Of course, chickens are, are birds and chickens are among the birds that are dying everywhere. And one of the reasons that happens is because it's so contagious, this latest iteration of bird flu. There are constant iterations of bird flu. They go on all the time. But this one is so bad that as soon as one bird in a flock, and you know these flocks can have thousands and thousands and thousands of birds, as soon as one, one gets it, they kill them all. And they kill them in the most horrifying ways. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go into it, but, you know, it's ventilation shutdown. I, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people have heard of, heard of this. Ventilation shutdown plus, they call it, because they turn up the heat. They basically cook these birds to death. Like, why does nobody know this? It's a, it's a monumental story. This isn't an American story. It's going on all over the world. Uh, we're talking about millions and millions and millions of birds. There, there is no sign that it's slowing down. It's extremely contagious. It's extremely lethal, and if it weren't, you know, lethal in and of itself, the fact that they kill all the birds as soon as someone gets it makes it even more lethal. It's in huge in Japan right now. It's it's all over Europe. It's everywhere, and and people just don't seem to know about it. It's it's unbelievable. It's, uh, this industry is unbelievable. And I don't even, you know, the, the other thing that's happening is it's killing wild birds. And when the industry talks about it, they, they tend to blame it on wild birds. And it's probably true that wild birds spread it from place to place. But I, I bet you anything that it originated in, in these horrendous factory farms and then spread to wild birds. And then wild birds are able to spread it, uh, from place to place. And the wild birds are are dying. I just saw a a huge number of snow geese just died. Like It's it's a nightmare that is being completely, well, not completely, but so largely ignored, except for talking about the price of eggs, as if that's the only problem that is being caused by this. It could make you crazy. And what's really, one of the most infuriating facts I read was that the egg industry is actually doing fine because people have this Ridiculous perception that eggs are necessary. And so price does not, you know, that they can't be substituted for. And that so price doesn't really affect their, their sellability that much. And the industry is doing great. They're making loads of money because people are spending more to get eggs, which are still, you know, remarkably cheap. So, even though they seem very expensive to people because they're usually even cheaper, they're still remarkably cheap food. I saw one of the things, one of the best things I've seen come out of it is from Just Egg.
1: Oh my God, I saw this. I love it so much, yeah.
0: Yeah, full page ad in the New York Times. And they've also had a bunch of billboards up. Plants don't get the flu. History's worst avian flu outbreak is emptying egg shelves and driving higher prices. Just Egg may, is made entirely from plants. So we're in stock. Free of cholesterol and ready for that breakfast burrito you've been thinking about all morning. Love it. The best eggs don't come from chickens; they come from plants. Yeah, I love it too. What a how how smart of them to to take this opportunity to remind people how much better their product is than than eating just eggs. Eggs are so disgusting.
1: When I was a vegetarian, I was a vegetarian for years before I was vegan. Like so many of us were, so many of us who've been vegan for a long time were vegetarian first. I think more people are just going vegan now directly from meat eating. But when I was a vegetarian, all I ate was eggs. This reminds me so much of this is so funny in the YA book that I wrote that I have to still do edits on. But when my agent read it and gave me feedback, she said, you have to like calm down with the Just Egg references, because it seems like this book was like sponsored by Just Egg. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, by the way, I know you, can you see Murray licking my face right now while I'm, I mean, I know you're the only one looking at me, but right now I am holding a dog who is, who is licking my face the entire time I'm talking.
0: Yes, I I can see him because you are on camera for me, not Not for everybody else. Hi, Murray. Anyway. uh, Yeah. Eggs. Like I, I was never a huge egg fan. It probably took me longer to catch on to just egg because... I didn't really miss eggs. Some people really do when they go vegan. But I now I've, I've become a little too much of a fan. Like <laughs> I
1: kind of want oh, to every eggs? day. Really? Yeah. I still like a tofu scramble. I do too, but just
0: egg is so easy.
1: Yeah, I, I have to tell you, that it's like, I know we've talked about this before, but every now and then it just occurs to me again. Like I was perfectly fine with our veggie burgers. In fact, some of them really tasted like meat. And then Beyond and Impossible came along and everyone's like, there are veggie burgers now. And I'm like, I've been eating veggie burgers for 20 years. And then it's the same thing with like egg analogs. Like I was fine, you guys, but we needed to like make something with this big bang in marketing to appeal to everyone else thinking, oh, there's this new thing now. There's veggie burgers and there's egg
0: analogs. I will say like, I love a good tofu scramble, but a good tofu scramble for me requires a lot more than just tofu. Like like it needs onions and green peppers. It needs something to jazz it up. Whereas right. just egg right out of the bottle into the pan. And when you think about how gross it is. Like eggs are so gross. Think of them with that yellow thing in the middle okay. and it's they're all they're all slimy. Oh god. Okay. How do people eat them? It's beyond me.
1: Beyond get- you.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's just beyond you. Anna, my friend, Anna Starstinovskia from Fudge News. We like want to create all these, we want to create hyperbole burgers and cause there's beyond and there's a uh, impossible and we want to create like otherworldly burgers <laughs> or like, you know, sensational. Anyway. All right. So let me stop talking. Let's get to the interview cause she's much more interesting than me.
0: Yeah, I know people are really like thinking, when are they going to shut up and, and let this woman talk? Because I want to know what's going on here. Shannon Falconer is the CEO and co founder of Because Animals, a biotech startup creating nutritious, sustainable, cultured meat pet food. Shannon holds a master's degree in biochemistry, a PhD in chemical biology, and worked as a postdoctoral research fellow at Stanford University prior to founding Because Animals. Shannon has spent decades volunteering in the animal rescue community and is a fur mom to her amazing rescue dog, Nori. She will be joining Jasmine right after this. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, OurHenHouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at OurHenHouse.org.
2: Welcome to Our henhouse, Shannon. Thanks, Jasmine. I'm very happy to be here.
1: I'm very happy to talk to you. And Did you say you're in Austria right now?
2: I am, yes. We have a lab based in Vienna, uh, which is where I am. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay, well, very interesting. So excited to dig in here. Let's just start, if it's okay, with you telling us what Because Animals is and what products it is working on producing.
2: Yes, of course. So Because Animals is a company making cultured meat specifically for pet food. And we started with making a cultured mouse for cats, mouse being the ancestral diet of the cat. So although people are of course used to feeding their cats and dogs, but chicken, beef, seafood, these are actually the main allergens for our cats and dogs, and of course, we're, we're just, we, they're included in pet food because those are, um, those are part of what comes out of the human food supply chain. But uh, in making cultured meat, we really saw this as an opportunity to grow the protein source and fat source that's most evolutionarily appropriate for our pets. Uh, hence why we're focusing right now on mouse, and then the next will be duck for dogs.
1: Amazing. When can my cat get a a, a sample of the mouse? Oh, wait, I was supposed to, like, ease into that question. I wasn't supposed to just ask at the beginning. But it's like you're saving all vegans who have cats and have these, like, horrible, you know, ethical objections. That's amazing. You're really solving that problem. Yes, we are.
2: We're definitely that's um, that's what I'm doing day in, day out, um, working on solving that problem. So uh, for us, we are we are working very aggressively to have a product available for consumers uh, in Q2 of 2024.
1: Oh, so great. So cool. And we just had Andrew Knight on our henhouse talking about Mm. some really cool studies that have come out recently about uh, dogs and cats and veganism and obviously we've long known that dogs aren't obligate carnivores but i think there's mm-hmm. been some confusion around cats specifically so we have been waiting on the edge of our seat and although my cat's favorite food is impossible burger which is not something i feed her on purpose but anytime <laughs> it's in the house she's wherever she is she's like Arr! and she like goes to wherever oh, really <laughs> yeah it's kind wow of yeah yeah that's amazing So what specific types of foods are you producing for dogs and cats? And why did you choose these as opposed to the meats more commonly found in standard pet food? Like, why mouse and why duck?
2: What we're really focusing on right now is, you know, for cats, feral cats, for example. You know, when cats evolved, uh, cats evolved eating mice and small birds and insects. And by and large, most cats that are feral, that's what they still eat if they don't, if they're not living in a feral colony that's tended to by a human, right? Eating them conventional commercial pet food. So we decided that, of course, a mouse-based cat food does not currently exist on the market. Um, But the reason for that is not because it's not a good food for them, especially given that that's what our cats evolved eating. Um, It's because the supply chain for the human food industry focuses on meat such as chicken and beef and various types of fish. And pet food is an industry that, that is, uh, basically uses um, those components of the human food supply chain that are no longer fit for human consumption. So the vast majority of meat, the chicken, beef, various fish that's found in pet food is made from either a or both uh, the 50% of the animal that humans don't want to eat as well as what are referred to as fallen animals. Uh, these are animals that die in transit due to dehydration, suffocation. And if an animal dies before it is slaughtered, it cannot be sold into the human food supply chain. All of this, basically, the, this, this remnants or these components of the slaughtered animals, they more or less are sort of heaped together a, um, and, uh, and sent to something called a rendering facility. By the time they make it to this rendering facility, this uh, flesh is very, very heavily contaminated. And so at the rendering facility, it's subjected to very, very high heats and high pressures in order to sterilize this otherwise heavily contaminated meat. And in the sterilization process, a lot of those essential nutrients, that cats and dogs both require that they would otherwise get from the meat, um, many of those essential nutrients are lost. So taurine, for example, is one of them, right? So taurine, a very, very water-soluble amino acid, it's largely lost in that rendering process. And so this is also why when you look at your ingredient label for your cat's food, you will see a long list of vitamins, minerals, supplements that are added to back to the cat food. This would be referred to in the industry as the premix. So these are those essential nutrients and taurine is in there. And when it's actually added to commercial pet food, the irony is that the taurine, that essential nutrient that everybody thinks about when they think cats cannot be vegan because they go blind, which is absolutely the case if they are not getting all of the nutrients they need, that taurine that goes back into commercial pet food, it's actually largely it's a synthetic form of taurine. Um, So most of those essential nutrients that cats need in the wild that come from meat, um, when they are being fed a commercial diet, those nutrients are largely there from a synthetic source anyway. The meat itself is really there, The what the meat is providing in terms of nu- nutrients, it's providing protein, but as for those other core components like vitamin D, arachidonic acid, various B vitamins, and of course, as I mentioned, couturine, those are added back in synthetic form. So with our cultured meat, what we're able to do, we focus on mouse as opposed to chicken or beef. Um, Although consumers are used to seeing those ingredients, they've been shown, they are known medically to be the main allergens for cats and dogs. So the first thing that a veterinarian will do if a customer or, sorry, a client or a patient brings their their cat or dog to the vet, uh, say, for example, with some kind of dermatological issue or um, gastrointestinal issue that they suspect is uh, is related to some kind of an allergen is to swap out the protein source. This will often be a protein source that is um, less common, um, so certainly not chicken. And it actually is often in certain hypoallergenic diets. It's also even soy protein. So... In making cultured meat, because we don't, you know, there was no reason necessarily to focus on chicken or beef, especially given that we know, given what we know, in that you know this is problematic for for a number of cats and dogs. We decided that we would focus on mouse because this is more this is the native prey diet of cats for dogs. Sort of following that that similar thread of logic, I suppose. We initially thought, okay, it was something. A native prey source, which might be um, rabbit or duck, they tend to eat uh, a, a wider variety of, um, of things, including including things that are not meat, um, than cats. So we have a bit more flexibility with dogs. But for cats, we, we really wanted to focus on mouse.
1: Besides, besides Impossible Burgers. I get it. <laughs> That's
2: so interesting. interesting. So are animals harmed in the production of these products? When we initially take a, so for example, a mouse, when we take an initial biopsy or a sample of tissue from a mouse, which is what we did with uh, the the cell line that we're using for our mouse. Um, we basically adopted three mice that would have otherwise been used for research purposes. So we adopted them. Wow, um, and they lived out their long, happy, healthy life in a, a plush mouse house and one of our a scientific director um, in her home. they lived a long life. They lived almost two years, which is actually quite a long time for this particular, these particular mice, we took a, some sample, some tissue sample from their ears. And so sort of like a ear piercing, we did have them anesthetized. So, you know, they, they were, they were not awake when they, when they had this piercing and then they were given painkillers when they, when they woke up. It's something that it wouldn't have been comfortable if they were awake, but, uh, but we did, we didn't, Minimize that uh, as much as we could, but I think um, importantly, we'll never have to go back to any mice again. So that tissue then serves as sort of the base, the basis for for all of the mouse cultured mm-hmm. mouse that we will grow henceforth. So depending on the types of cell lines that people use um, when they're making cultured meat, yeah, there are definitely opportunities and, and ways to grow cultured meat whereby you take a sample from an animal and then you never go back to that animal again. Mm-hmm. That's the route that we're going.
1: So taking into account that most of our listeners aren't scientists so I can think of a few can you walk us through the process for all this how all this
2: happens so you get the you get the sample and and then what So in order to never go back to an animal again cells need to basically be able to continue to grow forever indefinitely and there are two ways to really there are two ways to achieve this one is folks can either work with, when I say folks, I mean companies working in cultured meat, for example, can either work with um, something called an immortalized cell line, right? So this immortalized cell line, these cells do continue to grow indefinitely. In the industry, this is actually what most companies, most cultured meat companies are working with. Um, not Definitely not all, but most. And so what happens in order to create this immortalized cell line is that there is a mutation that occurs because our cells naturally, um, they don't continue to, to grow, uh, forever and indefinitely, right. They, our cells senesce or they die. So in order to, to, to basically make cells continue to grow this way, they have to have a mutation in a gene. By definition, if there's a gene, if there's a mutation in a gene that allows a cell to continue to grow indefinitely. If that mutation existed in, inside of a body, that would be considered cancer, right? You have a really aggressive a, a, a cancerous a growth or something, a cell that's now started to go very, very aggressively and uncontrolled. I will say that nobody has ever gotten cancer from eating cancerous cell lines and and so scientifically we don't believe that that happens right this is not this is not something that can happen for us though at because animals in any case um, we do see this as being a probably a pretty big stumbling block for a lot of consumers despite the fact that it is absolutely the case that when consumers are eating you know slaughtered animals from from um, slaughterhouses or farms or, or whatever, for sure, they will, at times, they will be eating cancerous cells, right? So it, at all, it doesn't necessarily mean that um, that animal had cancer, sort of this rapid, uh, rampant growth of a tumor or something. Um, our cells, for all of us and any of us, at any given moment, we have sort of these these mutations and then our bodies will clear them. But the point is, it is, it is absolutely the case that people, when they're eating meat, they are eating cancerous tissue mm-hmm. to a various... Degrees, but people don't really know this and they don't really think about it. And we at Because Animals decided this was going to be possibly a big marketing challenge. So we are not using any cell lines that could ever be considered cancerous so we are not using immortalized cell lines we are not using any cell lines that had mutations in them whether or not they occurred spontaneously or they were directed we just don't use them so instead we're using something called a pluripotent stem cell and pluripotent stem cells are um, basically any in any body there's a single population of cells that continue to grow indefinitely which are these pluripotent stem cells until those pluripotent stem cells start to become a certain type of cell. So, you know, we all start with sort of these, these cells that they, they have the capability to turn into anything. They can turn into heart cells, muscle cells, skin cells, um, bat cells. And so these are the cells that we are working with, the stem cells, and we grow them up. And then from there, we then create an environment whereby these cells can Turn into the tissue type that we're interested in. So for us, we're very focused right now on animal fat because that is such a uh, that is such a vital nutrient for cats in particular. Basically, after obtaining the cells um, from the animal, and specifically from there, we're using we are using stem cells. We then grow them in something called a bioreactor, and and basically, bioreactor is sort of a complicated term for. Basically, it's just a vessel that holds you know, a blend of nutrients. Um, Mm -hmm. And if we think about, you know, our body as a vessel that just has, you know, uh, that is mostly liquid. And so there's a vessel that has mostly liquid and it's running across these cells. Um, We control for temperature and gas exchange and the cells, they grow in in a way that's very, very similar to how cells would grow in a body because they're being fed all of the nutrients that they would be fed inside of a body Mm -hmm. and they grow and then we harvest that material. And I'll say that, you know, this idea of growing cells in a bioreactor, I mean, we've been doing this as a, well, as a society for a long time. Well, maybe not relative in relative terms, not a long time, but for example, growing yeast for beer, these, these yeast cells are grown inside of a bioreactor growing bacterial cells for probiotics. These bacterial cells are grown inside of a bioreactor. And so now we're applying, the use of bioreactors to grow animal cells. Hmm. And, and from there, we know genetically this is, this is meat. Um, we're, of course, just generating that meat in an alternative way. It's not a meat alternative, right? Cultured meat is not a meat alternative. It's meat. We're just growing it in a way that is different from conventional raising and slaughtering of animals.
1: Yeah, I, I have been waiting for this day for so long. I remember in 2010 on our hen house interviewing Peter Singer about like what is the future and he said and by the way no relation to me though I do call him dad I'm not sure he appreciates it but he (laughs) said he said you know cultivated meat I don't know if he used those words he might have said live-grown meat at the time here we are and I I have been working in veganism for long enough that on one hand I'm I'm so excited that we're here and on the other I am worried about the marketing Situation we're going to be in, the PR situation that we're going to be in, and you mentioned that briefly. Can you speak a little bit more about that and how you think we're going to deal with this sort of collective "ew" factor? Uh,
2: I don't know how we're going to deal with it. There. <laughs> um. In short, I know at least I have an idea as to how we're going to deal with it at because animals, uh, which is that. We are basically going to say, look, you know, this is actually, in many respects, this meat is more pristine than what people would be getting from an animal because we don't have those spontaneous mutations or mutants, and we do have a very, very homogeneous population of cells um, that has a very, very, in terms of its cell line, um, the genetic material uh, is, uh, well, as I say, it, it's uh, it's very stable, and so. Mm-hmm versus what you're getting from an animal, which is, yeah, you are at any given time, you would be eating, you would be and consuming, um, consuming cancerous cells. But furthermore, the important thing to think about is that, of course, the way that meat is produced conventionally is that these animals are raised in, you know, they're raised in basically manure, right? And then, and then they're slaughtered. And it has been shown that, you know, in um, different studies, where, you know, at a grocery store, okay, take a, take a thousand samples of, of, or samples of a thousand different types of meat um, mm-hmm. before it's cooked, and then try to culture out anything that might be on that meat. And in a hundred percent of cases, the resulting bacteria is, you know, their fecal fecal bacteria. And this is no big surprise, right? Um, right. Because of course, as these animals are, are raised in their own feces, this is, this is going to arise. And, and, and this is exactly why meat has to be cooked, Um, because if you don't cook it, the chances of getting E. coli or salmonella are are pretty good. And that's because those are fecal, fecal bacteria. So in our instance, when we're growing cultured meat, you know, there is no, there's no manure, there's no fecal matter around, right? We grow it in a way that's very, very clean. And this idea of, you know, oh, but I don't want to eat something that's grown inside of a lab. Um, well, in reality, we're not, you know, once we get towards production, commercial production, we're not actually growing this in a lab. We're producing it in a production facility in the same kind of production facility that grain is produced in, that milk is produced in, mm-hmm. um, that any product that you buy from a grocery store is produced in. So I think people have this, somehow they have this impression that um, that the, the food they eat is quote unquote, you know, very, very natural. When in reality, as soon as you step away from the fruit and vegetable section, I think we, we really need to reconsider what we, what we define as being natural.
1: Yeah. And I, I sometimes worry too about like what in the fruit and vegetable section, like what's actually on them, you know, what's on the fruit and vegetables. Not that, not that I really care that much about
2: that, but, uh, but
1: like we have, we have genetically manipulated like everything. So, what kind of safety testing is there to make sure these products are safe for animals? Do you actually test on animals? We haven't
2: tested on animals. I mean, certainly our um, the cats. We've we've offered cats um, the, the mouse meat to see if they if they like it, and they do. We haven't done any sort of standard, typical, typical safety testing on animals, largely because. We're sort of applying some common sense here um, and saying, okay, the, the types of testing that we're doing is, you know, cell line stability, um, something referred to as karyotyping, ensuring that these cell lines are not are not cancerous cell lines. There, there are no abnormalities with our cell lines. Okay, so those things are check. Great. So genetically, this would just be like it is identical. It is it is meat, animal animal meat. And then the inputs. Well, when we grow the cells and we feed them, we feed them very very defined ingredients so we know exactly okay we're bite we're feeding them vitamins minerals amino acids um these are all things that you could actually you know you could buy any any of these at a health food store for instance right so these are just nutrients that any kind of cell needs to grow and then in the end you know we're looking at okay what is what is the output are these are these cells producing anything in terms of uh, toxic metabolites? Um, and and in, in reality, no, because if they were actually making something toxic, these are also mammalian cells that were growing, right? So if they were producing something toxic, they would they would kill themselves. And so there's a lot of common sense that we can apply, and um, and also just you know rely on what we already know scientifically, as I say, you know, in terms of ensuring cell line stability ensuring that the nutrients we feed those cells are also nutrients that that we, of course, we know they're all feed grade or, or, or food grade, and we know that they're healthy. And in the end, also running a uh, test to ensure that there's no, there are no uh, microorganisms that have contaminated our, our growth, our meat growth. So there's mm-hmm. no pathogenic bacteria or yeast or viruses. And so we look at that too. So, and I think actually it was, I, I saw, just an announcement, it flashed on my phone this morning, Upside Foods, it seems just received the first um, FDA, no questions letter for approval of their, their cultured chicken. So Understood. yeah, it's not the, the safety piece, you know, that's something I think that a lot of people were really concerned about because it's lab grown. Um, immediately, there's this, this assumption that there's something, there's something that's bogus going on, um, when in reality, scientifically, this is really not the case.
1: Yeah, we have a really loud shower radio in the house and my wife was taking a shower and I and NPR was on and I heard that about Upside Foods and I was like, what? And I jut out of, you know, my office and I'm, like standing listening my ear at the door of the bath. It was so weird. But with with Upside Foods getting the go ahead from the FDA for their cultivated meat for humans, does that mean that both humans and animals will soon be able to buy and eat it?
2: No, it's um so typically the way Grass are generally recognized as safe applications work is that it is very specific to, you know, that company making that product because it is their process and it's their cell line. These things are, they tend to be, they are, they are very specific to the company. And so even though, you know, there could be a company next door working on growing cultured meat as well, um, that doesn't mean that they're cultured meat. It, it is absolutely, yeah, their cultured meat is not grass approved. It's only mm-hmm. it only applies to the company that submitted it and, and to Upside, for it, for instance. But what it does do is it does say, okay, you know this is just, this is um, similar to just receiving the approval in Singapore two years ago. What these approvals do do is they do provide um, a nice, I guess, confirmation that we are collectively as an industry, sort of we are on on the path forward. There are some guidelines that are starting to be put into place in terms of how these things are evaluated. I think for the longest time, that was the the hurdle. There are no guidelines. How do we evaluate it? And the great thing about hearing of Upside's approval is that clearly now there's a precedent, there's guidelines. So there's, there's a path for regulators to look to when other companies submit uh, for their approval process. But generally, in terms of pet food versus human food, they are different. Um, The approval processes are different. And although cultured meat for pet food does happen within the FDA, uh, it's at the level of the Center for Veterinary Medicine. So um, it's not quite the same body within the FDA that would evaluate uh, pet food as human food.
1: That was actually my next question. I, I I am curious if there are different regulatory requirements for getting pet food on the market as opposed to getting human food on the market. It sounds like it sounds like there are.
2: The process is similar, at least in the US, in terms of okay, it would be a grass application. There's a couple of ways that one can seek approval for a, a, a new pet food ingredient, but yeah, we would also be looking at a grass application. But uh the processes are generally very similar, I believe, between the human and the and the pet. But just, you know, the governing, the bodies are different.
1: Interesting. So you say on your website that animal-based meat is better for dogs and cats than vegan diets. A lot of I know we started talking about this at the beginning, but I want to go back to it because a lot of vegans dispute that, though obviously most people in the mainstream are totally on board. So can we go back to that? I'd love to know what your position is on that.
2: So my position on this is that um, cats and dogs, humans, every type of organism that is you know, anything that is alive, it subsists. We all subsist based on having a very specific nutritional profile, not an ingredient profile. So, the idea that cats need meat is inaccurate. The much more accurate way to phrase that would be cats require taurine, arachidonic acid, vitamin A. These are ingredients that, in nature, out in the wild, when you don't have, you know, when you can't actually derive them synthetically, in the wild, the only single source of these nutrients is an animal. So, in the wild, it is the case. That cats need to consume another animal in order to obtain all their nutrients. And that's because plants do not produce taurine, or at least um, it's been documented that maybe some algae do, but not in the quantities that cats need. Vitamin A, which is a, so pre, what we would refer to as preformed vitamin A. So, you know, you and me, we can eat a carrot and that beta carotene that makes the carrot orange, our bodies have the enzymatic capability of converting that carotene into vitamin A. Dogs have that capability too, but cats don't have that enzymatic machinery. So first of all, I mean, it's a, it would be a rare day to see a cat eating a carrot, but even if they did, their body would not be able to them convert that carotene into vitamin A. Again, out in nature, the only source of preformed vitamin A, it's animal, uh, tends to be animal sources. So when we, I think this is where definitions get hazy and vegan, not vegan. And frankly, I just, I try never to use the word. It's very, it's very messy because when we're thinking about cats in the wild, yeah, they do, they need to eat other animals in order to obtain all their nutrients. But when we think about commercial cat food, um, we can We can and do successfully feed cats um, a cat food that contains no animal ingredients. And that's because the nutrients that they do need, we've been able to derive from synthetic sources. Now, there's a couple of caveats to this, though, this idea of feeding cats a vegan commercial diet. The biggest one, as long as that food has been manufacturing in a way that is nutritionally complete, like it has all of the nutrients that cats need in the right proportions, then check, no problemo. The challenge, though, is that um, cats, a lot of times, it could be difficult for them to find that interesting or appetizing to eat, because for cats in particular, the main driver of taste tends to be animal fat. So it's it's not necessarily it's not animal protein; it's animal fat. And so in many in many instances, and plant-based fats are different than animal-based fats, and, and cats tend to, what really drives cat taste or palatability is animal fat. I have seen some of the, the um, so the commercial, even commercial pet foods by some of the big commercial um, pet food players in the space, their hypoallergenic diets actually, of course, they're not marketed as vegan or animal-free, but they actually contain no meat, some of them. What they do include is fish oil, largely again, because this is um, because we're talking about the fat. Mm -hmm. Um, But the meat itself, meat is not something that cats require, um, strictly speaking. It's the nutrients that come from meat, typically, well, absolutely in the wild that they need.
1: We just tried evolution diet with our Mm -hmm. cat. (laughs) She was not having it. She was like, Where is my impossible burger? Mm -hmm. I don't know why I keep going back to that, but it is, it mocks meat, you know? So. Needless to say, she'll sign up to be animal tested on for the mouse meat. Mm-hmm. So how did you get into this work? It's such an
2: interesting field. What is your background? I'm a biochemist by training. But before that happened, uh, I grew up with three dogs and three cats. I, um, they were sort of my, my siblings, my best friends. And I stopped eating meat in my early teens and then started uh, volunteering in animal rescues. And then I did that through my adult life. But yeah, I'm a scientist by training. And then while I was working as a, uh, a postdoctoral research fellow at Stanford University, i it's this incredible place in the world, right, where anything and everything is possible. And that's really when I decided that I would apply my scientific training to doing what you know was really most important to me, which is taking animals out of the supply chain and just generally creating a better world for animals, um, non-human animals. And so uh, at first I thought, of course, I would um, do something related to the human food industry because humans are the main consumers of animal-based products. But then, you know, I was thinking, ah, but you know, okay, I have lots of, okay, I would like to have more options for myself, but really I have a lot of options and I'm, I'm very fine. The challenge though, is that I'm pretty hamstrung when it came to feeding my, my cats and dogs too, but it's, it's, you know, cats are a bigger, bigger deal. And in this instance, I'm, you know, sort of forced to support this industry that I otherwise don't by buying meat-based, meat-based foods. And when I started talking about this with a few people, you know, their reactions were, yeah, but it's, I don't know that it's going to make much of a difference because, you know, it is just the leftovers of the human food supply chain. But then as I started to understand more deeply and sort of, so this argument that's often made, which is that oh, pet food's a sustainable industry because it's just using the leftovers. The rendering industry is a $25 billion industry. Wow. And so it, it's not as if these sort of quote-unquote scraps are just, you know, they would go to waste otherwise, right? Or they would just go into the garbage. The pet food industry is absolutely buying this from the animal agriculture industry. And in the absence of the animal agriculture industry being able to sell all of this otherwise unsellable meat to pet food, the reality is that the animal agriculture industry as we know it could simply not exist. The economics would not makes sense. Basically by, by saying, okay, well, it, forcing the animal agriculture industry, you know, if folks actually turn to actually feeding their cats and dogs either cultured meat or or plant-based or something other than slaughtered meat-based diets, now suddenly um, the whole economics uh, of the industry are thrown into the air and that makes it really difficult for this industry to, to continue as it's been doing. Mm. So hence why, and, and pet food is largely a white space, right? Of course, the very, very, very few companies focused on pet food, nonetheless, Um, We know that from, at least from an environmental perspective, more than a quarter of the devastating side effects of the animal agriculture industry in terms of deforestation, water, fossil fuel use, uh, it's directly attributed to the foods that people feed their cats and dogs. So 25 to 30 percent of that, I mean, that's a a huge percentage. And if we think about the relative number of players within that 25 to 30 percent versus the 75% um, in the human food sphere, it's clear that we need, we need folks focused on pet food.
1: So true. And I have to tell you on my end, I mark clips that you say when I think that they could be good, like quotables, just the little pieces that we put on social media. And I have done it so many times (laughs) because everything you're saying is like, just, it's, 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 Stuff people aren't, you know, discussing enough, especially regarding what you just talked about, how people consider pet food a sustainable industry. And that's not that's just like not a full story. It's not accurate. It, it's it's just this is the future. You mentioned that this will be coming out next year. You said Q2 at 2024.
2: 2024. So, um,
1: okay. Yeah. Yeah. We're pushing for 2024. Mm
2: mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Amazing. Amazing. So you mentioned when you were just talking that like regarding your profession, this is something that's particularly important to you. Can you tell me a little bit more about why that is and what your story is?
2: Growing up with three dogs, three cats, developing a very close relationship with animals at a young age. I mean, I've had my rescues, um, or fosters my entire life. I I know this is, this is the case for many people. So I'm not, I'm not, um, unusual in this way, but for me, I feel much more comfortable around, you know, around non-human animals than I do human animals. Um, and so, those instances of sort of um, animal cruelty or thinking about um, considering, you know, the way that generally humans treat animals, whether or not, yeah, certainly cats and dogs or or farmed animals, for me, it doesn't, it, it makes no difference. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I find this a, a very, very emotionally triggering situation in the world. Um, and, and frankly, you know, I don't, for me, I, I don't see how as a species, as a human species, we are still in this place of treating animals the way that we do. Nonetheless, here we are. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, how, how did I get here? Um, generally speaking, our treatment of of yeah, one another, but definitely not human animals is probably the most, it's absolutely unconscionable. And so um, there are a lot of folks who do care about it and who are, you know, looking to to change the status quo, but from my perspective, not enough. And what we do know, sadly, is that just, you know, having, banging our fists against the wall and saying, this is cruel, this is inhumane, we shouldn't do this, it doesn't change people's behaviours. And mm-hmm. if anything, you know, a lot of folks just become, angry and resistant to it right and just and hostile and defensive and so really the only option as i see it at least at this point in time where the best option seems to be to give people the option of you know more choices in terms of their food you know not ask them to change their make lifestyle changes because people don't like making lifestyle changes right. so um let them live the way that they want to live but gives them give them a variety of Products to choose from, um, yeah. so that you know we don't ha- we don't have to fight about mm-hmm. this, um, and they don't have to make any compromises. This mm-hmm. is what we've seen. This this seems to be the more um, the more effective path.
1: Yeah. Well, I have a couple follow up questions uh, about that, and I think I'll save it for our bonus content. But Shannon, this is really a breath of fresh air to hear about all of this can you tell our listeners where they can find because animals and how they can stay up to speed i'm sure i'm sure everyone is just as eager as i am to get their hands on this mouse meat
2: Cool. Yeah, becauseanimals.com is our website. And you can if you go there, you can read all about, um, you know, because meat and how we're how we're growing our our cultured meat. And that's generally our, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, we haven't really been extremely active on social media as of late. um, But that will definitely pick up once we get closer to, um, to launching our commercial products.
1: Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us today in our henhouse, house, Shannon. It's been a real pleasure. And I really look forward to staying on top of the incredible changes that because animals will inspire.
2: Thank you very much for having me, Jasmine. And thanks to all your listeners.
1: change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review.
0: Anxieties are rising. Our first story is from one of our favorite commentators, Hannah Thompson-Weeman, who has long been a commentator writing the Animal Ag Watch column on Meeting Place and is now actually the president and CEO of the Animal Agriculture Alliance. And it's just something so perfect, so perfectly horrible about that. Animal rights extremism set to go back on trial in 2023. This is her reaction to the DXC uh, trial in Utah, where Wayne and and Paul were, were acquitted of stealing two piglets. And of course, that might have been a little difficult for her to formulate. So this is what she has to say about it. While most of us try to stay on the right side of the law, for some animal rights extremists, getting arrested is their goal. Well, you know... I'm not sure it's their goal, but yeah, it's definitely on the list of things that are likely to happen. They crave the media attention. Well, yeah, that's true. And are eager to go to trial. That's absolutely true. This gives them yet another venue to advocate their belief that animal agriculture is inherently cruel and unacceptable. You nailed it. And their actions against farmers and ranchers, including break-ins, theft, and large-scale protests, are necessary, even if they go against the law, which they also believe to be unjust." Well, yeah, she goes on to explain she is talking about DxE as the best example of this. And she points out that, unfortunately, the results of these trials have been a mixed bag for animal agriculture. And she points to the conviction in this last December where Wayne Shung was convicted of larceny for taking a goat from a farm in North Carolina. But then in October 2022, a jury in Utah came to a different conclusion following a week-long trial involving Shung. And two other DXE activists taking well, it was actually one other DXC activists taking piglets from a hog farm in Utah in twenty seventeen. Despite admitting that they did in fact enter the farm without permission and took the piglets, the activists were apparently able to convince the jury to find them not guilty with emotionally compelling arguments about their intention to save animals. Again, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I would put it the same way. They were emotionally compelling. They were also apparently legally compelling. And they were intending to save the animals. As she points out, to say the least, (laughs) she's putting it mildly, the outcome of this trial should cause significant concern among the animal agriculture community, as activists have been vindicated for taking unlawful actions. Wait, wait. They weren't unlawful because they got acquitted, Hannah. That means that they weren't unlawful. Taking unlawful actions that put the health and safety of livestock and poultry at risk. Oh my God. Oh my God. These poor little dying piglets. In order to promote a false narrative, a false narrative that, you know, uh, they had on film. <laughs> oh, Hannah. She's pointing out that more trials are coming up. There's going to be one in Sonoma County, one in Wisconsin, another one in California involving chickens. So, uh, yeah, we'll be very busy. Apparently, so will Hannah. We'll be staying tuned to these trials and the resulting media coverage. And what they'll mean for meat and animal agriculture. If you're concerned about safeguarding the future of animal agriculture, I'd recommend keeping an eye on them as well. And that's that's her advice. I I guess they really don't have much. They're not able to come up with much to say about this. Uh, Keep an eye on it. Guys, we'll be keeping an eye on it too. All right. Our second story is from the finance page of Yahoo. This is a weird one. Pennsylvania Farm Show Butter Sculpture Recycling shows positive impact dairy farmers have on planet well dairy farmers are apparently deeply deeply desperate to say something good about themselves especially when it comes to their environmental impact so this story it's almost too weird you'll kind of have to see the picture this is from uh, pennsylvania as i mentioned this is about the the farm shows 30 second butter sculpture when you, i say butter sculpture i mean a sculpture yes made out of butter but this is, it's huge. It's huge. It's this life-size thing. I don't even know what it's depicting. There's like something in the background, but then there's a guy and then there's a woman and there's a tree and there's a calf and they're all like sort of uh, communing with each other. I don't know. It's in butter. What can I say? It's a thousand pounds of butter. So yeah, wasting butter, which, you know, they've stolen from cows, tortured cows, whatever. This, I'm thinking, how are they going to make this like an environmental triumph for the dairy industry? All right. This guy transported the the thousand pounds of butter to his dairy farm in Mifflintown, Pennsylvania, where he has two methane des- digesters. Apparently these methane digesters, I, I admit, I don't know a lot about it. I think they're usually on dairy farms to try to like, you know, create the illusion that they're taking all the methane from the cows and, and turning it into fuel. But these... Are waste digesters. They, he he actually gets food waste from nearby retailers, which I guess is a good thing. I mean, there shouldn't be food waste, but if there is, it should be digested. It's broken down in the digester to create renewable energy. Is that a good thing? I don't even know. Because my point is, isn't what he's doing regularly is good? He they're talking about this be how how um, he's reducing the amount of greenhouse gas emissions. He's running a sustainable and cyclical operation. Because they're taking waste, which is this butter that they made a sculpture out of. A thousand pounds of butter. And then they're turning it into, into uh, a resource. Well, I, I, what? <laughs> I know. I know. I, I don't think I did a great job of describing that. It's just too too weird. All right. This is a sad one. Well, no, it's not sad. I mean, it is sad because it's all sad. But, you know, um, this is also from Yahoo. Half's reaction to being placed in a pen with pigs is so innocent. This is by Mary Hawkins, and she writes some pet column. You know, there's two questions going on here. Is she really this stupid? And also, why are they running this? Like, what's the purpose? All right. So this is apparently about some, some you know, some uh, yuppie farm. Do people still use the word yuppie? I don't know. Some yuppie farm where, you know, they have like a few animals and, and they sell beef don't really know whether they associate it with the animals. And th- I think they have some goats and they sell soap or whatever, you know, the, a small family. And it actually is a family farm from what I can tell. It's called New Frontier Farm. According to Mary, they posted this video on TikTok. And this is the cutest thing all week. While some animals commonly interact on a farm, others are typically kept in separate spaces. Well, no shit, Mary. <laughs> Yeah, they are. They're deprived of their families and and their mothers and kept in separate spaces. That's exactly what happens. Such is the case for one calf who lives on a farm in Minnesota. I have no idea how they treat their other calves. As I said, it's a beef farm. But when his personal pen needed to be cleaned, his mom needed to figure out what to do with him. And, you know, when I read this, I was like, what? His mom? Like, why would his mom? (laughs) <laughs> why, would, why would a cow be, be cleaning the pen? Of course, they don't mean his actual mom. They mean his owner. And so she wound up putting him in a pen with a bunch of pigs. And then they have this cute little video from TikTok about how this precious calf reacted to meeting his new little friends. Well, oh, he actually snuggled right up to them. Well, yeah, he's deprived of, of contact and uh, he's probably longing for his mother, his real mother. Um, but she thinks this is the perfect example of Mother Nature at her very finest. This doesn't have anything to do with Mother Nature. Oh. and something tells us the pigs love their new company too. I guess they—I guess they sell pork too. You know, like why else would they have pigs? That's kind of their only function in most people's lives. And you know, there's all these cute little comments. Oh, they love hanging out with other animals. Well, yeah, they do, especially you know ones they're related to. Are you going to let them have a sleepover with the pigs? All right, this is disgusting, but it also really demonstrates, you know, something that I'm always in denial about. I always say people know what's going on. They just don't want to do anything about it for a bunch of reasons. But people are really, really, I was going to use the word stupid. Maybe I should use the word naive. Maybe I should use both words about what goes on on real farms. And this article is just uh, just making them feel very comfortable with their ignorance and as I said, one reason, one thing to wonder about with this article is, why are they running this? Like, what's the goal here? Something for us to think about. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties.
1: That's it for this week's show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you're always welcome to make any size donation you're comfortable with. You can also support us by leaving a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our henhouse. You could also leave us a review on Facebook. And if you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Herron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of The Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.